Welcome to It's All About Who You Know with host Craig Turner from Momento, the business growth agency. On our podcast, Craig interviews executives from chambers of commerce around the United States and Canada, tapping into their expertise on how to get the most value from your business associations, how their organizations are serving their members, and what's happening in their market for companies looking to grow there. Here's Craig Turner. Welcome to the It's All About Who You Know podcast brought to you by Momentum, the business growth agency. I'm Craig Turner, your host, and welcome also to our first episode of 2023. If you follow us on LinkedIn, you'll see that we've been posting content the past several weeks for both chambers and their members about how to have an awesome membership experience this year. One thing as a chamber member that you need to know is that January gets very, very busy for your chambers and their, and their staff. All the events and programs kick off. In many states, the legislative sessions get up and running, so the chamber advocacy team gets activated. And you have no idea how much work goes into planning the big events like annual meetings, galas, and golf tournaments. Now, I say all that because if you haven't already, now is the time to try and get a coffee meeting with your chamber rep and let them know where your company is headed this year. They are there to help you in 2023, and they just they need to know what actually helps you. My guest today is not a Chamber of Commerce executive. Not anymore, at least, but he was, <laughs> and a lot of you know him. It's Gene Barr, former president and CEO for the Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry. Now, I had the opportunity to meet Gene in October at the Pennsylvania Association of Chamber Executives Conference in Gettysburg, where Gene gave a presentation on leadership lessons from the battle at Gettysburg. And I'm not saying this because Gene's right in front of me right now, but it was one of the best business presentations I've ever heard. And I had the great opportunity waiting for one of the tours in the hotel lobby to get a few minutes with Gene to talk one-on-one about it. And in that conversation, I asked Gene if he'd be able to come on the podcast with us. And that was before we even got to his his career at the at the chamber. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking about all of this. And Gene, thank you so much for for spending some time with us today. Craig, thank you. I greatly appreciate the opportunity and look forward to the conversation. So let me let me start by just giving a quick formal intro, uh, and then we can get into that conversation. So uh, Gene Barr has recently moved into a new role as senior advisor for GSL Public Affairs in Harrisburg with more than 40 years of experience in government and business operations. And that's after finishing a 10-year spanning 21 years. Is it 21 years? I, I, uh, almost 20. Almost 20 at years the, with the, the Pennsylvania State Chamber. 20 years with the Pennsylvania State Chamber. The first eight as Vice President of Government and Public Affairs, and then the remaining time at the helm of the organization. Prior to his service in the Chamber, Gene worked for BP America for more than 12 years in various capacities. Before that, Gene worked for the Associated Petroleum Industries of Pennsylvania, handling all their legislative, regulatory, and media activity affecting major oil companies, and was named executive director of that organization in 1997. Not surprisingly, Gene's bio has many, many board and volunteer roles, and I'm not going to name all of them, but I wanted to call out a few. Gene's a former board member for the Council of State Chambers. He's a former board member of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and a former member of its Committee of 100, Nominating and Governance Committee, and Policy Advocacy Committee. He's appointed by the Pennsylvania Speaker of the House as an Executive Committee member for PA250, the Pennsylvania Commission for the United States Semi-Quincentennial. Additionally, he serves on the boards of the Foundation for Free Enterprise Education, the Bridge Educational Foundation, and he's a former board member of the United Way of the Capital Region. So we've got all that, but during that time, you also served as elected official in the Philadelphia area for 10 years. 
So you've covered the gamut of <laughs> everything you do, which has led you to this role that you that you're in now. So uh, again, thanks for being here. So before we get into, I do want to talk a little bit about what you're going to be working on now uh, in Harrisburg. And I've had the chance to meet your successor, Luke Bernstein, at the PA Chamber, and I'm hoping to have him on the podcast at some point too. So I don't want to steal his thunder, but from your perspective, can we start with give us uh, a little bit about the Pennsylvania State Chamber? Sure. Yeah, the easiest thing to say is that, that the state chamber is the largest broad-based business advocacy group in Pennsylvania. It's got about 9,500 members that represent all sizes, kinds, types of businesses across all kinds of industries. Everything from the largest companies you can think of in Pennsylvania many times all the way down to the smallest. And one of the things that I'm very pleased about is that so many local chambers have chosen to join us as well. So our job, as we say, on, on the advocacy side is to go out and and talk about what's needed to make Pennsylvania a more competitive place that can not only attract but retain our people here in the Commonwealth. And now a word from our sponsor. It's All About Who You Know is brought to you by Momentum's Virtual Ambassador Training Program for Chambers of Commerce. Does your Chamber of Commerce have an ambassador program? You know, I ask that question just about every chamber I meet, and you know what's interesting? All too often their answer is yes. Yeah, yeah, with a question mark and their voice tailing off at the end. And I know why, but it's the nature of the beast. Because think about what a chamber ambassador program is. You're asking a bunch of volunteers who barely have enough time in the day to get done what they need to get done for themselves to be an advocate for your organization. On paper, it looks great. In real life, it's an uphill climb. And I know that most chambers that have an ambassador program know it. We created our virtual ambassador training program to help make a better experience for everyone involved. We look at the ambassador relationship from all perspectives, meaning we know what the chamber needs to get out of it, we know what the member needs to get out of it, and we also know what the volunteer needs to get out of it. We give your ambassadors tools and mechanisms to optimize the time and energy that they can give you. Call it a real-world application of creating and strengthening the relationship between your chamber, your ambassador, and your member. We hold monthly sessions of our virtual ambassador training for chambers the morning of the first Thursday of each month. If you're a chamber of commerce, we'll make your ambassadors stronger and more effective. If you're an ambassador, we'll make your job easier and your time better well spent. Get more information at chamberambassadortraining.com. Now back to our program. I love the way that uh, the Pennsylvania State Chamber is structured because you have your members, a typical state chamber, the big members that have Harrisburg interests, but you have the chambers, the individual community and regional chambers are members as well. And the way that you've set it up is that if you're a member of any of those chambers, you get to be, I, I believe it's called an associate member. Yeah, we have. And it is critical because it does expand that, that reach. It expands that voice. So if you are a small business, and we count that as 10 or below, you can go to your local your local chamber can say to you, hey, join us, and you automatically become a member of the state chamber, which which expands that necessary voice that's required for advocacy everywhere. Right, because we're not a lot of in many cases uh, the the local chambers are not going to be able to weigh in on those bigger issues that the state chamber is doing, and consequently the information and the education that, that the state chamber is working on that they just have that inside baseball is so valuable. And what's neat is I'm a member of both the Pittsburgh Airport Chamber and the Northside Chamber in Pittsburgh. Okay. So we're a member of the Pennsylvania State Chamber. Well, that's great. And local chambers, I know we're going to talk a bit about that, but 
during my time, I greatly enjoyed working with them because it's critical that when we tell an elected official something about an issue in Harrisburg, that they hear the same message when they're back in Pittsburgh on the you know on that particular issue the message is the same the positioning is the same so what we don't want to have happen is to have the local chamber exec caught unawares like i don't know they were working on that or we feel differently that leads to real problems and i think one of the things that i've been so pleased about working with the chambers has been our ability to work cooperatively on those things so we've spent a lot of time, and we've talked about this often on the podcast, about the the evolution of the role of the chamber pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. I think we, we, we don't have to talk too much about the, all the Zoom meetings anymore that we had for two and a half years, but there definitely is a different approach, not only needed for sustainability for the chamber, but needed from the perspective of the members too. Now we've talked about that from the perspective of of the local and the regional chambers. Can you talk a little bit about, because your tenure, most of it was pre-pandemic, but you were there during during the pandemic and when all the changes were being made. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective about how that role for the state chambers has evolved? Yeah, absolutely. And you, when you talk about pandemic, and again, there's going to be probably hundreds of books or have already been books written on it will continue to do that because we're still assessing what the fallout of that is, the fallout from a societal basis, a cultural basis, a business basis, a medical basis, all these things are going to be talked about. But I think it is fair to say that what we had in the span of a little over two years, whatever time you want to put to it, we had workforce and workplace changes of 20 years that were compressed into two to three. And so for us in the chamber world and the business world, I think the issue is what lasts. You, you know, we all joke about the Zoom meetings and the Microsoft Teams, et cetera, but we don't want to talk about it. But the reality is they're here and they're not going away. It's fundamentally changed. It's not a case where it's going to be, hey, we all did remote work for this period of time and now we're all back in the office. It has fundamentally changed such that, as you know, people are coming in, they're interviewing for jobs and they want to know how often can I work remotely? We found that we can do it. As an organization, we had to leave that building in March of 2020, get enough computers to where we could all work. As the governor said, you're all gone home. We're, you know, we are under requirement at that point. So we had to do that. We found out we could do it. If you had told me what all of us could do working together over that period of time, I would have said there's no way. But we found out a way of doing it. But it has fundamentally changed from a state chamber perspective, I think, as we look at what was our most critical issue going into the pandemic and continues and has been for a while, has been workforce issues. How are the policies that are viewed past legislation that's drafted and enacted on workforce, how has a pandemic changed that? And we're going to be seeing that. How has the ability to remote work impacted labor law, employment law, the workforce availability? One of the, maybe the only Certainly one of the only good things out of that has been, for example, if you have a disability and you really can't leave or have a difficult time leaving your home navigating mass transit, we found that we we can probably find a job for you somewhere. So I think what it does is hopefully open up a whole unavailed uh, resource of people who can now work from home. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to look at state and federal policies relative to workforce that recognize what happened in the pandemic and to be able to utilize that and craft that in a way that assists our workforce efforts. 
It, it's interesting the you talk about the policy piece of it, but there's the dichotomy of the policy versus the the market of it. So companies that can afford to, and we hear this, we've talked about this on the podcast a few times too, which is rural and smaller communities actually losing workforce because those people can get wooed by the coasts, by New York and San Francisco, and make $20,000 more per year without having to, to leave home because they can still work from the rural areas or, or wherever they are. So you, so yeah, the policy is, is a big piece of it, but then there's the market who can afford to, who can offer and say, Hey, no, you, you work for me, you can work for a home and a company that can't, can't afford to do that struggling with that. Well, you know, it's a good yeah. point. I remember talking about this with policymakers at the outset. And I think there's a little bit of a twist on it that pen, places like Pennsylvania, I think can take advantage of that and take advantage of it from this perspective. If you are in one of Pennsylvania's smaller cities, boroughs, whatever, and, you know, I, I really think that states ought to in Pennsylvania should probably look at this to be able to say to somebody, hey, look, you were in New York, you had to work remotely, but look at what the real estate market is in New York. And you might want to do that. But, hey, you can come out here and you can still have that job and that you have in downtown New York, receive that salary. But come out here and what you were paying for this 1,100 square foot place in New York, you can get a palace out here in wherever it is in Pennsylvania. So you're so you're paying the property taxes there. You're participating in that community. Yeah, obviously, we don't have what you might call the glitz of Manhattan, but you can live arguably with you and your family a better lifestyle, access to the outdoors while still getting that. So I think that I would hope that states would states and municipalities would begin looking at, look, you can work remotely, come out here, have an incredible home, incredible quality of life, but still have that job in wherever, in San Francisco, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, wherever that is. So I would think that people need to think creatively about that. I think that it could be a problem for smaller communities, but in ways I think it might be an opportunity for smaller communities. That's great. That'd be a great attraction piece. And it's funny, I just made a connection in your in my head as you were saying that because that argument that you just made was the exact argument that we were making 15 years ago for high-speed rail, that you could, you know, if you could get to New York from wherever you are in an hour, then you could live out here in the country or the suburbs and still work in downtown Manhattan. But now, now we have this instead. Yeah, you could. And of course, there's still discussions about you know, rail out in, you know, various parts of this country and in this Commonwealth, but the ability to work remotely is a heck of a lot cheaper than acquiring the real estate and the rights away necessary and the construction for that high-speed rail line. I'm not saying it's not necessary. I'm simply saying it's a lot cheaper to be able to work remotely and be able to be in that 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 small town or that area that that gives you what you're looking for. Absolutely. So we, we've talked about policy a little bit. You're moving into a, uh, a position with the firm that, that isn't altogether too far distant from what you've been doing all these years. If you're okay with it, can we talk about Pennsylvania a little bit? There's a new governor. What are, what are going to be the business community's hot button issues in Pennsylvania this year? Sure. Let me just talk about, so you're absolutely right. I moved over to GSL, which is Griffin, Stevens, and Lee. It's a public affairs operation of Stevens and Lee law firm. And interestingly, I'm working with a lot of folks that were in Governor Wolf's administration, one of the things that, and I think this is critical to talk a little bit about, because in these days when we've seen so much polarization, honestly, you mentioned my previous 
elected office time. That was many, many, many years ago. I was actually started as a senior in college, but grew up in Republican area, registered Republican, but worked very closely with people from the Democrat administration. We actually got things done. And so I just to do some part time work, keep my hand in it, I agreed to go over there. And it is an interesting time. So we've had another Democrat elected governor, someone who who I've known for many years as going back to his time as a member of the state house here in Pennsylvania from Montgomery County. From there, he moved on to Montgomery County Commissioner, ran for attorney general, attorney general over over to governor. The Senate remains here in Pennsylvania in Republican hands. The House, interestingly and somewhat actually pretty surprisingly, switched from Republican control to what will probably be Democrat control. Things are very much in flux now. So when the smoke cleared after the elections in November, the Democrats held a one seat advantage. Unfortunately, one of the seats that they held was actually the person in it passed away and he was still elected, Tony DeLuca from out in your areas. Tony had been a state rep for many, many years. In addition to that, two other Democrats who ran for two different offices simultaneously, Austin Davis ran for his state house seat, was elected as lieutenant governor. Summer Lee ran for her house seat, but was elected to Congress. They resigned from the state house. So now Republicans have a nominal advantage. Uh, Those seats are expected to go Democrat when their special elections are filled. It would be a surprise if they did, but who knows? I've, we've all been surprised before. So it looks like the Democrats will probably hold an advantage, except that one of their own was elected speaker this week, and he has promised to govern as an independent. So out of the 203 House seats, uh, is it going to be 101 Republicans, 101 Democrats, and one independent, in which case nobody's in the majority? So this is going to be a very interesting set. Well, they're all in. They all have interesting Perhaps one of the more confusing and confounding sessions that we've seen in a long time. That's crazy. So where where will the chamber be focused? And and, and I'm not assuming you're going to be working on only business issues, but where what are the business issues this year, do you think? Well, I think it's interesting that, that to look at what, what Governor-elect Shapiro has said. He has come out in favor of the significant policy legislative reform that we did during this year's budget, which was cut Pennsylvania's corporate net income tax in half. It was a huge red flag to investment in this Commonwealth, and we were able to put us on a path to make us more competitive. He supports that and actually supports going even lower and perhaps accelerating the phase out. He stated his support for permitting and permit reform, which are major issues for Pennsylvania. Again, huge red flag. You come to Pennsylvania, it takes forever to get a permit for your operation, and too many companies go elsewhere. And he has expressed some reservations over the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which was Governor Wolf's proposal to further reduce carbon dioxide emissions. So he's indicated support for a number of issues that are of critical importance to the Pennsylvania Chamber and local chambers. And so I think it will be interesting and I think it will be incumbent upon the business community to say, hey, this is what you said you're going to do. We want to work with you to get to that because it will, as I said earlier, help attract people here because of the jobs hopefully will come here and keep our young people here. Those are all critical things for us to do. So I think we're working and looking anxiously at what Governor-elect Shapiro is going to do. Excellent. Well, it's good to hear that that uh, those are the focuses. I'll tell you, I, I attend regularly the uh, legislative breakfast at the Pittsburgh Airport Chamber, and, and it's 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 kind of neat to see a, a pretty cohesive unit out there of legislators that 
that uh, are in tune to what the business community is looking to do. So about 20 years at the chamber, at the state chamber, do you have a favorite initiative or accomplishment that you worked on? Kind of you consider your 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 pinnacle of uh, the lead, your leadership there? Well, we talked a moment ago about the corporate net income tax rate cut, and we had been looking at that for a while. And I think okay. that the point that really pushed the need for that home was when Intel announced a major chip-making facility across the border in Ohio in Columbus. Billions of dollars in investment. And when I talked to people in Pennsylvania and state government, they said, quote, they never even kicked our tires. So I think that helped propel and give impetus to to that cut. For me, that was it was a great way to leave my my chamber position, having worked with our team to, to get that in place. And frankly, worked with a Democrat administration and the legislature, Republicans, Democrats, to get this thing done. This was not simply we put all the Republicans in place. This was a a a liberal governor who strongly supported it. And I don't say that to demean him at all. If he were sitting here, he would agree. So that was a major one. The other one was working with our team to be frankly and local chambers from March 2020 on realizing what we needed to do to galvanize to to help small businesses and all kinds of businesses in this commonwealth to work. And we work cooperatively with the local chambers on how can we change? How can we get waivers for people? How do we reopen quicker? How do we push on this? How do we get the federal assistance out to them? How do we get assistance and push that out? You know, at the outset, when we began to meet pretty quickly back in April, et cetera, was basically a triage. Who's worse off? Where do we need to get help out right away? Then it became more longer term. But I think working with our team at the chamber, working with local chambers. And I've got so many friends in the local chamber world, I believe it was, you know, to be able to go through that period of time to survive and thrive because we did it together. And that's such a fascinating thing too, because there are, there, there are many, many things that the chamber works on on a daily basis that are front page of the news and high profile and you hold an event surrounding it. But all the chambers that kept their doors open and, and were there for their members and filling out PPP applications and everything, there's no kudos for it. It was something that needed to happen. And I guess the kudos is that you still have memberships and you're still in business, but but it's not something that you thump your own chest on. But it's hard to ignore it as a major accomplishment, like you just said. Well, one of the neat things, and I, I still remember there was a guy who called, in fact, it's his his name was Jeff Bartos, and he ran for U.S. Senate, and I got to know Jeff a number of years ago. He started something here in PA that was started in a couple of other states. Somebody he knew it was called the Pennsylvania 30-Day Fund, I believe. And they, what they were doing, they were taking, I, I want to say the number was $3,000 or might have been a little more grants. And they would, he, he described this to me. He said, we take, I'll use 3000 I can't remember exactly, but, but I think that's right. Give it to a small business and say, we know you need help. Give it to the restaurant on the corner, the Main Street restaurant. We know you need help. We know you got PPP or maybe it exhausted. Here it is. Pay it back if you want. Pay it forward if you want. Don't ever pay it back. The money's yours to do with as you want. And I said, all right, so Jeff's calling and he wants the state chamber to, you know, throw some money in. And he said, no, I want you to help me find people who we can give it to. So I still remember getting on that call because we were doing regular calls with our local chamber partners and saying, 
we have the opportunity to literally give this money to people and just having them get so excited, say, get in contact with a 30 day fund and begin to have this money flow towards people in their downtown communities. It was just this this great thing and, you know, a wonderful thing that I think happened. And it, again, we pushed that money out and they came to us because they knew of the network that state and local chambers had. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Those programs were powerful and necessary and it, it was pretty, it was pretty incredible to see those things roll out and the chambers, like you said, we're at the, we're at the center of them. Let me flip over to Gettysburg. So I, I want to just point out that Gene is a board member. He's a former chair for the national civil war museum in Harrisburg. He's authored a book, which I have right here, Civil War Captain and His Lady. It's just, we're not using the video, but I just held it up for, for Gene to see. <laughs> so looking at your resume and your intro that I gave before, your career and the different jobs you've had, the Civil War's not in there anywhere. So how did, through all everything you're doing, how did how did you get to be a recognized leader in Civil War history? Yeah, I don't have a degree in history. I was going to, but then changed my mind at the last minute, kind of because of a political ideas course that I had in, in in high school and then switched. And so I'm not a professor. I've never worked, you know, full-time for a museum or anything. My interest in Civil War history, I have a longstanding interest in American history, but it was really age 11 trip from Philadelphia out to Gettysburg. I don't know what it was. It was one of these things, the place just captivated me and we could spend a long time talking about what that's done to others as well. I know you've got an interest as well, and it could be there's just something there that hits it. It's kind of like people say, well, why do you like skiing or why do you, I don't know. There's something about it that the, you know, if you're a skier, the exhilaration, the, all those things. So there's something about that period in Gettysburg in particular that captivates. And I just, from that period on, I had a strong interest in this. I did study a lot about American history even though my degree is in political science when I was at St. Joe's. But then after that, I, I did things, you know, I was in, um, you know, living history just to see, just to, to, to see all that. I've done four movies on the period as an extra. And, you know, as you mentioned, I wrote a book based on a series of letters that I acquired that to me told a story that needed to be told. And so it's just one of those things that captivates my attention to me. It's the kind of the epitome of the, the American experiment, the the tension, the torment, how what one person is called, I think it's a great description of the slavery issue, uh, slavery being the birth defect of the American Republic, what our inability to deal with that particular issue resulted in. It resulted in the death of 700,000 Americans. Right. And I think that those are things that force all of us to look at why it's so critical to, to civilly resolve our disagreements with each other and at the same time obviously resolve moral issues the fact that people of a particular color were enslaved so it points out the need and the critical need to fully engage on these issues and that battle and that battlefield as as you as you're saying it's, it's not just a battle there's so much more to what happened there it is and i i said i i spoke to a group down there a while ago so there were a hundred and Roughly 175,000 men who fought there, but there are not. So there's not a Gettysburg story. There's more than 175,000 stories because it's 175,000 who fought 
3,000 people of the town that some of the people who came after. There are more than 200,000 Gettysburg stories, which is why it's so fascinating. And those permutations continue to cause us to take a look at it from a scholarly basis. Absolutely. Uh, Gene, Gene knows, and I think I may have mentioned on, on the show, that my first job out of college was was uh, editor of a uh, Civil War swap sheet newspaper. And, and I actually had the opportunity. I was already interested in the Civil War before that in Gettysburg, but that was a great opportunity. And I met some fantastic people that were running shops and doing living history. And when, when Gene got up and started talking about leadership lessons from Gettysburg, I was on the edge of my seat and <laughs> ran up well. to after to talk. <laughs> It's a great community. I've you know met so many great people through that, and it's just the way, you know. I I just I just love the study of it. I think it assists in what we do, and I think that in many ways it's both an assist and a diversion from what we do. Sure. So transitioning from the chamber to your new role, what what gets you excited? What gets you out of bed in the morning? You know, it's it's still. I people always ask me that about the chamber, and to me. Sounds kind of strange, but it's true that when I got up in the morning, the fact that I was going to advance the goals of the economic choice free market system that has brought more people out of poverty than any system man has ever invented really does do it for me. Because I, when I was at the chamber, firmly believed in everything that we did. It wasn't like, boy, I don't, I don't agree with that, but I'll go do it anyway. And yes, the fact that I was able to, to be in the policy helped craft the policy, but I firmly believed in everything that we did there. And one of the things that I really like doing, and I hope, we'll, in fact, we are looking to do a little bit more of it at, at, at the new place, is to, as I said to someone, pleasantly surprise someone with what you're working on. People, people look at the chamber or chambers, the chamber world. And say, oh, all you guys want to do is cut taxes and eliminate all the regulations and give business whatever they want, which is none of that is true. The strongest defenders of an appropriate tax structure and an appropriate series of regulations is the business community. The people who are doing it right want that done and they want that to continue. They don't want to let people do whatever they want because the good guys get hurt in that area. But I think it's important also to surprise people, as I said, to work on things like workforce. Yes, it does benefit business to work on things like criminal justice and early learning and appropriate child care. One of the things we found out during the pandemic was that we're hurt by workforce because there are barriers to employment. People don't have the transportation they need to get to work. People are blocked because of a years and years ago criminal record that they had that they incurred. People are blocked because there's no, and in all honesty, let's be honest, it's more women than men because they, they don't have quality child care that they can trust. And as I mentioned earlier, there people have a disability who can't navigate the transportation system to get from one side of Pittsburgh to the other. We can do that now. So looking at those things, have people go, wow, I didn't know you guys were doing that. Some of it, yes, self-serving because we're hoping to expand the workforce, but a lot of it is just the moral and the right thing to do. That's very well put. It's it's very easy and you see it you see it in social media you see it in the media people just don't want to work well it's not really true 
the people are having trouble work. You think about the, you talk about the childcare, the moms who look at the the bill for childcare and say, I might as well not even work because everything is going to childcare. Absolutely. That's the reality of the situation. Yeah. And look, let's be honest. There's a small number of people who say, I'm not interested. Most of them are exactly as you say. Look, with the numbers that I'm looking at and the fact that I, I, I don't trust, I, I can't find a childcare system that I trust. I'm going to do it myself. And again, Maybe remote work gives people more of that opportunity, which means that we're going to have to find the right way to make remote work as efficient as possible. Having said that, we all know not everyone can work remotely. I understand that. Um, but I think it's recognizing that, that the rules of the workforce in many ways have changed. Right. So let me take that to the next level from your time at the at the chamber, your your, your new role as, as a consultant. There there's there's lots of ideas there's lots of things we can work on there's lots of people have lots of solutions our, our favorite question that we ask on the podcast here is if you in your role as an economic development leader had a blank check what would you spend it on to help the state you know great question i think a lot of that a bit comes down to what we've said which is i think there's a need certainly for more early childhood institutions i think there's a need to 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 fully communicate to people the worth of Pennsylvania. We have this, this view, and it was frustrating to me. Perhaps you probably have seen the same. You sit there and you, you hear all this, and we get these commercials for New York and Maryland and everything. Come to New York, come to Maryland, and I don't see anything on Pennsylvania. Telling our story better, we're not the old Rust Belt. We've got, again, looking at your background here on the – Pittsburgh is a phenomenal city. We've got phenomenal cities and boroughs and all kinds of places in Pennsylvania. So something that tells uh, an investment that tells the story of Pennsylvania certainly would be critical with, you know, again, what, you know, what we've done. So we like to, I'm going to start to wrap up here and appreciate, appreciate your time. We like to, uh, we like to share and we actually have a page on our website too, that kind of gives everybody's Thoughts, but inspirations. Uh, what do you do? You have to stay in the know. You have to stay inspired, uh, even as you're out there trying to inspire other people and educate them. Are there podcasts, books you like, blogs that you follow? Anything you can share with us? I'm really old school. I love to read. I read books a lot, and because of my work with work with Gettysburg, I'm doing a lot more on leadership these days. You know, I do read other periods, World War II periods. You know, read about other people's experience and sometimes it's just like a little sometimes it's a quote that i see somewhere that that kind of resonates i saw one a little while back that that talks about to me looking deeper at the complexity which kind of goes to the civil war and the quote was nostalgia is memory without the complexity and we feel nostalgic about things but we need to dig deeper sometimes and kind of the old thing like you said nobody wants you know the kids don't want to work anymore no they do there are some issues let's let's dig deeper into that in terms of 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 why let's dig down and find out what we can do to change that so it's looking at all of those and it's thinking thinking more deeply again in a time that it's so polarized that you know you look at everyone has their favorite tv shows they that they gravitate to to basically have their current viewpoints 
verified. I'd like to look at, we should all be looking at things that we don't agree with to try and say, is there something in there that we can take? What's the common ground we can find? Is there a refinement to our position that we need to look at? And I think those are the things that that we all should be doing. It's interesting. You you said earlier, and I was going to comment on it about early on in your career when the, when the two sides worked together. I, that's, I cut my teeth with the county legislature here back in early 2000s. And it was the same thing. We might, we we were arguing on the floor, but then we'd all go out for for drinks after, and we, you know, and 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 we actually got stuff done. So to, I think to us who, who lived in that world and saw how it should work, the current environment is extremely frustrating. And the fact that that you were able to do the the piece with the with the taxes across the aisle, I think, I think is is tremendous. And it, that's unfortunately a more rare story right now. And I wish it wasn't. Well, I wish it wasn't, too. And we got into a situation every year. The chamber does their annual dinner with just phenomenal speakers like top notch. We've had George W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell. And we got Alex Trebek to moderate the gubernatorial debate one year. But one of the things that we did a few years ago, we haven't gotten back to it yet. I hope that we do is to give out an annual civility award. And one of the you know, we've given it to people the we did along with Allegheny College was to find people who are very passionate on their partisan side, but are willing to work together. So we'd find a Republican, a Democrat, and 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 award them. And the last award that we gave was for the four members of the Criminal Justice Reform Caucus. And it was as diverse as you could be. So there were two Democrats, two Republicans, two members of the Senate, two members of the House. It was Representative Delosier, who was my state rep here, Senator Cameron Bartolotta, uh, Senator uh, Harris from, um, I'm sorry, Representative Harris and Senator Haywood, two African-American gentlemen from Philadelphia and the other two women were white. Incredible diversity on an issue, as I said before, that in my view is one of the ones that you go to surprise people. You find things, well, why are you guys involved in that? Here's why we're involved. And I think those are the things that we have to find. We have to find ways of doing that, find ways of setting aside our agenda sometimes, or at least move pieces of it forward, but realize, here's what I need, what do you need? Right now, the way that the political system seems to work is, here's what I need, you're wrong, not only are you wrong, you're evil, and I'm going to destroy you. Yep. If we continue to do that, we will all be destroyed. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. Where, if people want to, career move, if people want to stay in touch with you, uh, stay in, stay on top of what you're working on, where, where, where should we send them? Social media, the website? Yeah, let me give you a couple of um, happy to do on email addresses. So gene, G-E-N-E dot B-A-R-R at gslpublicaffairs.com. My own personal is G-E-N-E-B-A-R-R 55 at gmail.com. You're comfortable with people emailing? <laughs> sure. Excellent. Why not? <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. It's called networking. Yes. So, all right. Well, Gene, thank you again for joining us. Very, very much appreciated all your insights and and uh, the time that you spent with us. You have so much going on. Uh, I wish you all kinds of success as you move into this next phase with GSL Public Affairs. And I will tell you that from my conversations with uh, chamber leaders throughout Pennsylvania, that your impact and influence uh, at the helm of the state chamber is is long lasting and, and will be. So appreciate your efforts there. Well, thank you for doing this. And, you know, again, as I said, it wasn't just a throwaway line. Many, you know, so many of those 
local chamber folks became great friends. I, I really did enjoy, I got around to so many of them and seeing the work that local chambers are doing in their communities is incredibly heartening. Absolutely. Well, to our listeners, as I said before, reach out to your chamber today and set up a coffee meeting and then get some of their events on your calendar. Get out there and grow your business because no matter what they told you the last few years, you can't grow your business from your desk. So get out there. If you're interested in learning how we can help you create a strong relationship with your chamber of commerce, check out our website at www.momentumforbusinessgrowth.com. I encourage you to connect with me, Craig Turner, on LinkedIn because I post weekly advice, information, and guidance on how to make the most of your chamber investments. Again, if you'd like to connect with Gene, he dropped his email in there. You can also get him at gslpublicaffairs.com. If you need more information on the Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry, you can visit pachamber.org. Gene, thank you again for being here with us. Thank you to our listeners. And we'll see you soon with another episode of the It's All About Who You Know podcast. Take care and have a great 2023.